Land. This is your host of Psych and Sales, David Weiss. And as usual, I am joined by my amazing co-host, Dr. Aaron Weiss. You want to say hi to everybody, honey? Hey, everyone. And on this episode of Psych and Sales, we are joined by Ed Jaffe. Uh, Ed is the owner of Demo Solutions. Um, Ed, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Demo Solutions. What, what do you guys do? So we help sales teams, uh, both pre-sales and pure sales teams, sales teams make better their audiences with demos and presentations. And that comes a few different ways. We focus on coaching. So helping teams level up their skills and get better. We help make content more accessible. So fewer words to look at making sure the content is inclusive to all the different audiences involved in a deal. And then we also do outsource services. So let's say you're a, a company that wants to bring aboard a pre-sales resource, but doesn't have the means to do it or don't have the ability to really manage a resource like that. You can have someone from our team come in and act either as a head of pre-sales or as a pre-sales person on your team. That's really cool. So I, I, I haven't seen a lot of companies that um, have like solution consultants, pre-sales folks um, come in as experts, which makes sense. I mean, if you're going to teach people Hey, how do we how do we form the the best pre-sales demo? To also have people that can learn a solution and come and do it for you if if uh, that makes sense. So um, that's a it's a really cool uh, business that you've started. Talk to us a little bit, Thank like you. where where did this come from? Why why did you start it? So it's it's funny. Every time I've gone out of pre-sales, I just go back into it because I've realized it's the only thing I'm really good at. So I just sort of keep coming back, no matter every every time I try to do strategy or something else, I just in pre-sales. And so I was in a situation where I was figuring out my next move right before my son was born. And I knew paternity at a different company wasn't going to be an option. And so I decided sort of on a lark to start this thing. And fortunately, two years later, um, I've, I'm lucky enough to still be here. And so that's, uh, we, we've been growing a bit. I made my first hire right before COVID. And so we're growing the team and um, really have been adapting to sort of the new virtual world and figuring out kind of how we support teams given all the changes everyone's going through. Yeah, please. Uh, I was just saying, I, I know from our conversation earlier that you actually use a lot of uh, psychology and, and psychological principles as part of your um, your work with people. And I wondered if you could maybe comment a little bit on that. Sure. Uh, well, you know, as we were talking about before, I, I am definitely a psych expert, you know, with my psych minor from 15 years ago. That's uh, uh, definitely bring me well. But um, no, in all seriousness, it, it's for me thinking about how we communicate is so important and think about the way people perceive us. Um, there's a, a great book by Alan Alda, which is about he, he does a lot of focus on communication and helping technical people and science people communicate better. Um, it's if I understood you, what I have this what I have this look on my book is called. And so he has this great line, which is something to the effect of it's not our job. It's for the it's our job to make sure the audience understands us. It's not their job to understand us. And so thinking about what are the things that we do that make an audience more receptive to us uh, is, a, is a big focus of what I do. And then I just read a lot of stuff like, you know, Daniel Kahneman and some of the behavioral economics guys, because I'm just a nerd and enjoy it and try to use it as best I can. So what I hear you saying is you, I, I thought we just were supposed to show up and 
tell everybody about the features and functionalities and, and just talk at them for an hour. You're, are we, we're not supposed to do that. I am actually of the mind that a great demo shows as little software as possible because that's not really what it's about. You're, you're trying to make a connection um, and it's about an emotional connection, just like any part of sales. But the demo is even more important in that sense because you're either going to scare the audience and look too complicated or you're going to show them that you understand them and you can influence that decision. Because uh, I, I do believe that a lot of times we run into the heuristic around and, and I don't remember what, what it's which one it's called. I should probably go back and look it up. But the, you know, we basically make a decision and then justify it later. And so once we kind of know what we want to do, we'll find the reasons that we made the decision. We just, that, and I think that happens a lot in sales. Yeah, people uh, buy uh, emotionally and justify it logically. Um, exactly. Also known as, and what's the technical term? I, I said, I think you're talking about the confirmation bias where you have an idea and then you go and look for evidence to prove that idea that you already have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's definitely a big thing that, that, that you'll see both with features and functions as well as the actual thing you want to buy. Cool. So, so break it down a little bit for us. Like, um, um, I, I know in our, our, uh, conversation that you and I had a few weeks ago and, and just now a little bit before the, before we started recording, you know, talking about, um, the, the lizard brain and the limbic system and, and, and different ways to trigger those and, and not to trigger those and what to, and not to do. So when you are, you know, working with people and someone contracts, you know, demo solutions to kind of help them master, uh, the demo itself, what, what are some of the threads that, you know, you're, you're helping them pull? Yeah. So the, what you're referring to, it's the triune brain theory, which is the way that we process information. And there's three systems you mentioned, two of them, the reptilian and the limbic, and there's also the neocortex. And so the reptilian is all about, uh, it's that fight or flight fear for your life. And it's so easy to trigger it. And it's less you thinking, well, it's not like a life threatening situation to demo. At least it, it shouldn't be something has gone very off the rails if that's the situation, but much more about if I say, and this happens with especially AI all the time, Hey, our solution is so good. And it's going to make you so efficient. You can get rid of half your team. And I've seen some variant of that with various solutions. And so when you say something like that, your audience, you've now lost a whole bunch of people in the room because you're going to have all the users who are worried they're going to get fired. And you have all the managers who now worry they have to go fire people all because you're trying to focus on what you think is a benefit. And now the audience is, is gone. And so you have to avoid triggering that system. And then when we think about the limbic system, that's all about getting someone's attention. It's sort of um, the dog and up where it's just, you know, squirrel, squirrel, like what's over here, what's over here. And it's just looking for something to pay attention to. That's become even more important in this virtual space that we're all in now. Cause before, when we're in the room looking at somebody, I can tell if you're paying attention or not much more easily. And there's less to distract you. You're either gonna look at me, maybe you'll look at your phone, but not for the whole meeting. Usually um, now I can pay attention to my, you know, my iMessage just as easy as I can pay attention to my meeting and no one knows what I'm doing. So it's even more important that we're holding someone's attention and minimizing distractions. And then the third piece 
is the neocortex. And it's all about the associations people have and how people remember information. And so you want to have your thing be what they remember. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to use their language. And so if I go in and talk about how I'm going to solve their problem in the way they talk about it, it's going to be much more likely they're going to remember the meeting versus if I go in like most tech companies and, you know, I'm going to leverage big data analytics in the cloud with a single source of truth and one pane of glass and all of these things that we all use words that mean stuff to us, but customers have no idea what we're talking about. And so if we can use their words, they're more likely to remember what it is that, you know, we actually do. That, that's, oh, go ahead, honey. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that that's really interesting. You've talked a little bit about like ways to avoid trigger, triggering the reptilian brain and ways to engage the neocortex. What are some of your tricks for the, the limbic system? The limbic, there's lots of ways to do it. And, and what we found sort of universally, there's, there's things like sound, motion, emotion, color, movement, names. Those work particularly well. And so... With names, it's either somebody's name um, or it can just be, where are my customer success people in the room? This part's for you. So finding ways to use some identifier, no different than when a comedian gets on stage and says whatever the city is and everyone goes nuts because they associate themselves with that city. So that will immediately get someone to perk up. It can be overdone if you're one of those salespeople who uses someone's name every three sentences. I don't think people like that. So it's all that balance. Uh, But it can be anything from, I know for me personally, if there is a typo on the slide, I'm a nerd. That is the only thing I'm going to look at. So if you get something like your and your, I'm not listening. I am just looking at the fact that there is an apostrophe where it shouldn't be. And so that it can be things as little as that that are distracting. Or if in your demo, you happen to have iMessage pop up, which it happens, but that will distract your audience. And so it's I'm a big believer in kind of in keeping things simple so you're not distracting your audience and having them make a connection with you. It's also why webcams are so important, because when you see somebody, you're going to be more likely to focus on them and pay attention because faces are something that we pay attention to. And so even if the customer doesn't go on webcam, I'm always on webcam because I want them to see me and focus on me. I think that's changed a little bit in this COVID world where more people are used to being on webcam, but there are still some people who aren't comfortable with it. And salespeople just have to be used to, I'm gonna look at the audience and if they don't look at, if I don't know they're looking at me, it is what it is. I'm still gonna do my demo. Yep, no, that makes sense. And it's interesting, um, and, and I'm not gonna name other vendors here because I wanna keep attention on, on demo solutions, but there is sales training that talks about uh, people being in the hammock. Um, and meaningful uh, spikes um, of attention. So I think that those things are tying together. And then there's there's also some conversation intelligence tools that talk about no person should have a monologue that's more than two to two and a half minutes long at any given time. And it's that whole thought. It's like, how do we keep people consistently paying attention to the message? Because if they don't hear the message, you don't spike them to keep paying attention. You might as well have said nothing or just stood there and danced the whole time because <laughs> no one's going to remember anything. Um, and if exactly. you talk too long, people start tuning out. So are, are all those things the, the limbic system or are there other kind of factors there? 
Well, I think the one that is more common is if we go back to that reptilian piece, some of them, those phrases, like the phrase I used before about, you know, well, you're going to be able to fire half your people. I think that's less common than some of the more subtle things that people are doing that can trigger that audience. And sometimes the audience doesn't even know they're triggered. They just know they're upset. Uh, It can be as little as I made this mistake once I was in front of an audience and it was a company about... 10 years old, give or take. And it felt like a startup. I mean, I literally was riding a scooter around that office (laughs) and I used the word startup and somebody who'd been there from the beginning, they, I, right when I said that word, I saw the look in her, her face and I know she interpreted that not the way I meant it, but they're like, no, we've been around for 10 years. We're not a startup. And at that moment I saw the look and I was done. Like I might as well have just walked away because that trigger just such, I I could see the emotional reaction from her. So it can be sometimes something as small as that. And think about most sales. I'm not going to name any sales methodologies or knock any sales methodologies, but how many sales methodologies focus on pain? And so we walk in as salespeople and so many salespeople are taught, find the pain, identify the pain, focus on the pain. And so I, you know, if I, especially if I've done discovery, a lot of times you'll see salespeople walk in. Okay. So we learned in discovery that your current solution is 15 years old. You're totally archaic. I don't even know how you're still in business. It's so bad bad. You have this homegrown thing that's terrible. Meanwhile, the, you know, the person that built it's in the back of the room. Um, and so there now you've offended them. Um, and so we say all these things and, and I understand the, the idea is that, well, if we motivate them with pain, we'll get them to do something. But I, I sometimes think that when we motivate with pain, you just make people feel bad. And that is not going to make someone like me. If I make them feel bad, they're just going to shut down and ignore me. So, and, and let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think there's some important nuance here. Um, from my perspective, there, there's really two archetypal messages in sales. There's, um, there's why change and why us. Um, and at some point you need to get someone to be willing to make a change and then get them to realize that you're probably the person they should make the change with. Um, pain falls under that archetypal message of why change. Um, so from your perspective, where, how to drive the why change message um, without bringing up pain or then maybe how do you bring up pain in the right way? Any, any thoughts there? I think you have to meet people where they are and you, you have to understand really what's motivating them. And that's where you start asking questions and get to know your audience. Everybody has something different that's motivating them. So with, with some people, maybe they're gunning for a promotion. And so if you can tap into that, pain is not what's going to get you there, but you know, looking good for your boss, that's the thing they really care about. And so can I focus on those benefits that are really relevant to that audience? And what are going to be the things organizationally that that really work is if we don't pay attention to that stuff, it's so easy to say something that just doesn't fit in that organization. And what we define as pain, we, we know what the pain is as we talk to them, but I think there's, there's two pieces. One, they can say their pain. We can't say their pain. We are an outsider and there is something about an outsider walking in and saying something that it just impacts the audience differently because now you're a third party saying it and you're seeing it and you're on the outside. You know, it's like, you know, I guess people can't see me. I'm bald. I can make ball jokes. You can't make a ball joke. It just, it's, it's that same idea when you're working with audiences. And so I think that we have to avoid some of that language as we, as we talk to them. Cause I think ultimately they're, that's just going to hurt them 
because you're you're just telling them why they're bad at their jobs. And so I think that's where sorry, I'm losing my train of thought. We can edit that out. And I'm gonna stop and we can keep going. So and and no, I, I definitely appreciate that. So to kind of go to go back to um your 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 point, your your thought there. Um using words like what we've heard or what we feel like your priorities are yep replace improve you know uh, boom 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 um and when we've helped other organizations do these things these are some of the results that they've seen because now yeah. it's why opportunity the opportunity and then where we go so we're we're uh, bridging the gap um, exactly. And the other piece too with that is they they may know their pain, but they're used to it. And so when we walk in, change is its own set of pain. Change is scary. Uh, think about how much the world has changed and everyone's scared right now, which rightfully so. But as you try to introduce change in organizations, that can be very scary to people because now you're going to have to change how they spend their time. You're going to change. Maybe they'll lose their job and they're worried about that. And so especially when you have old systems you're trying to replace, there's a lot of job security for people with old systems. I was working with somebody once who I'll make this up, was talking about a, a system that they had that still ran basic. I'm talking basic, like the old Radio Shack computers from the 80s, and it had one function and it did it really well. And there was one person there who knew how to run it, who how to run it. That person had job security. The second that thing is replaced, that person loses all their job security because they can hire somebody cheaper who can use the modern tools. That person's going to do everything they can to fight you, even if the thing they're doing is terrible. There might be things that are actually making it work for them. I mean, we, we see that in modern day too. Like, you know, you've got Workday and you've got Oracle and you've got all these sysadmins that are like, I am a Workday specialist. If you replace Workday, I literally don't have a job because I'm here to just keep that very expensive piece of technology running as, as good yeah. as it can. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we got Reptilian. Um, what we've heard as opposed to here's your problem. Um, yep. We've got tell stories of the positive outcomes so people can envision, you know, the personal and professional gains from making the change. So that, that's a nice tweak. We've got limbic to your point, um, movement, color, spikes of attention, shorter monologues, engaging the audience with, Hey, I know you are so-and-so title. What did you think about that through your lens? And then, you know, watching for people to nod and then engage based on based on the emotional reactions that you're seeing in the room. Um, Neocortex, yeah. let's let's talk that. I, I know you touched on it at a high level, but I want to connect dots for the audience. Um, talk to us a little bit more about the neocortex again. So, if you think about the associations people have, we all have sort of a, a shared language. If you think about where culture fits in. Uh, this may be a bit of an old reference, but if you think about, say, the movie Spaceballs, Spaceballs is funny because we've all seen Star Wars and know the references. So that's why satire works, because we have that shared language around. It's funny. I don't have to explain. Use the force. I, we all know what that joke means. So that's a way you can tap into that association because we all have it. And certain brands have done a really good job tying themselves to whatever their product is. Um, I think you have, you know, Kleenex. That wasn't. 
they were tissues, but we all just call them Kleenex, Xerox, Google. I think that there's enough examples of that that people can probably think of. And so you want to focus on, you can either focus on making your tool the thing that they associate with. So, you know, if I'm thinking outbound, I'm thinking outreaches could be an example that, that I, I'm sure that the marketing people are working on. But then it's understanding how do they talk? What are the words that they use? One of the questions that, that we ask sometimes is, if you think about the meeting agenda, and I'm, I'm not talking the first slide, which is always the same, which is, um, you know, we're going to have an intro, Q&A, demo, and then Q&A. And every deck has that slide and it's a gigantic waste of time, but they, they all have that. But if you think about even further, where you're going to talk about what are the things in the demo, I could either use phrases that mean something to me as a vendor. Um, actionable analytics is in every single, every single demo you know, agenda that I've ever seen. But there are also plenty of ways that I can talk about the, my own features as a as a tool, I mean, I'll use outreach example. If I say, you know, email sequences, some people in the room may not know what that is, and they they're not going to ask you because they're scared to look dumb in front of their boss. So if you use a term like that, no one is ever going to interrupt and say, I don't know what that is. And so instead, um, you know, automated emails, uh, you know, automated scheduled emails or automated one to one emails. That's how they would talk about it. So you ask yourself the question: If I weren't in the room as a vendor how would the audience talk about this? And that's how you tell if you're using their associations, because if I'm using my words and, and sequences is probably, probably something a little more universal now, but I'm sure there are plenty of other things that we can talk about, particularly around AI is the big one now, where everyone talks about AI and ML and audiences just don't know what to do with that. And to some degree, they don't care. Big data. We saw that with big data a few years back. Like, There's every, always something. It's the cloud. Data. It's big data. You know, you name the buzzword. I'm sure we'll have something different next year. Um, you know, with blockchain for a while, that's still there, but less the one that everyone's talking about. I'm sure we'll have something else. Right now, it's kind of Zoom. Something else will come soon enough. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing that that's where some of the, the discovery that you would do before a demo comes into, right? You learn some of how they're thinking about and talking about things and maybe trying to incorporate some of that language then into your demo. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. And I think that that's a great way to think about it. And discovery is one of those things that lots of salespeople talk about, but I think is it's an underrated skill. And primarily one of the challenges around discovery is separating the idea of discovery from qualification. So a lot of times you'll, you'll see where sales teams are focused on BANT, budget, authority, need, time. One of those types of methodologies around, can this person spend money? which is not the same question as will this person spend money and can I give them a reason to spend money and can I understand them? And so if that's our goal, I don't, one of the things that really throws it off is a lot of presentations start with 15 minutes about myself as the vendor, where we all have the same kind of intro slides where I give some high level overview. Here's our company, here's our investors, like here's a we call it the NASCAR slide because it looks like a, a NASCAR vehicle, which is covered in, in logos. Here's the NASCAR slide, which, by the way, that can trigger a reptilian response. If I'm a small company and you come in with a NASCAR slide of a bunch of big companies, I'm scared you're not going to pay attention to me. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to be important to you. And so right away, by talking about yourself, you've now triggered something in me that I, I'm now scared of something and I'm not going to pay attention because you found a way to alienate me 
in the first five minutes of your demo without even talking about it. So I, I would rather go in and ask questions, let the audience talk for half an hour, and then I can always adjust and show things. I can come in prepared with five to 10 things that I know I can show and let them tell me what they want to see and then just mirror some of that language back to them because it's such an easy way to show them I understand them. Yeah, and that, that's really a, a good point that I want to double click on for the audience. I can't tell you how many times I've worked with sales reps as a leader and, and shit, man, I've done it myself as a salesperson where I'm like, I want to talk about our biggest, baddest logos. And, you know, you get, and I've gotten the objection. Well, we're not Pepsi. We're, we're not them. And it's like the second you talk about an organization that is misaligned with their company, you've, you've lost them. Like you need to not yeah. only find equal company size within, you know, depending on, I mean, within a few thousand, if it's a huge company, within a few hundred, if it's a small company um, and same industry and, and similar challenges. And the closer you align with that, the better. And just know if you don't have something like that, I mean, you either want to be transparent about it um, or, you know, maybe not bring it up because to me, it almost causes more harm saying we do this and this. And they're like, great. I'm glad you do them. We're not them. Who in my industry do you do? And then you, then you are trapped. So you need yeah, to be, you know, they're cautious. Yeah. Well, and even, and, and I, I agree with all of that. And the other thing I would add too, is if we think about meeting people where they are as technology people, we are on the cutting edge of everything out in that space. We have the biggest, baddest tools. We're focused on really advanced problems. A lot of people just aren't there. So I, I used to sell when I was doing pre-sales as a job, I was selling marketing technology. And so I'd go in and show campaign management and real-time personalization. So I'd show website content changing based on customer behavior. And I had this awesome demo. I, I think I thought it was awesome anyway. I was so proud of it. it. Everything just looked really good. And this was very early in my career. And I remember I finished this demo and a bunch of people in the audience, I was like waiting for them to be like, oh, that's so cool. And I sort of could feel the crickets in the room. And finally one person just said, dude, and, and yes, they, they call me dude in this meeting. Uh, dude, we can't even send an email in less than a week. And you're showing me this? Like we're, you're five years ahead of where we are minimum. And so by not understanding where that person was, I was so far away from them. And at that point, it was, it was too far gone. There, there was, I lost any ability to build trust with that audience because I've shown them that I know nothing about them and I don't care. It's like, let me Google that for you at this point. And so it's again, one of those situations where I should just pack up my laptop and go home because I've triggered so much anxiety with them. I've now made them feel bad that they can't use the modern thing. I've made them feel bad about the state of their company and that they are so far behind. Um, I just look dumb in front of this group of people. So I, I haven't made that mistake again, but you know, sometimes it takes the embarrassment of, you know, bombing in front of 15 people to realize that you're doing something wrong. Yep. And for the people uh, from a psychology perspective, we've all been there. It's okay. You'll recover <laughs> yep. and maybe even start your own business, teaching people and learn from those, uh, those challenges. So um, pick yourself up. We've all made those mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm a big believer in just being yourself in front of audiences. And that's, that's the best way to sort of avoid some of that. 
And it's really about trying to connect with people as people is what all of this comes down to. And so you can look at whatever methodology you want. You can take whatever approach and read as much as you want a book. But at the end of the day, people are just going to buy from people they can make that emotional connection with. And so, for example, my style, I actually have um, on my site, I have sort of six, I call them demo identities. And they're, they're the different personalities that we have when we're in front of an audience. It's not necessarily like a Myers-Briggs. It's more like a disc, like a communication style. And so I know for me, I'm what I, what I refer to as a comedian. I just get up and I say stuff and sometimes it works. I'd like to think usually it works, but when I bomb, I bomb really hard. And so I know that that's my Achilles heel and I have to adjust for that in front of some groups. But by doing that, I can always be myself. And by being myself, it's the easiest way for me to avoid a lot of the stuff that we've talked about in this conversation. Cause I don't have to worry about, well, am I using this with the right corporate slide? And am I doing all this? No, I'm just going to get up and have a conversation and we're just going to talk like people and we're going to go from there. Some people can't do that. So if you're the person who can't do that, that's completely okay. You might be what I call a planner, the person who needs kind of everything, you know, written down and planned out. And if you can do that, that's awesome. I can't. My, my wife is a planner. I do not understand any of it. But for someone like that, they're going to be really great in the situation they prepared for. They just might get thrown off if, they, if they're not ready for something. So that's really the, that's really the key is, is figuring out how can you be yourself. And the, the more you can be yourself, I think the less worried you end up being about everything we've talked about. And you can just, you know, just have a human connection. But I'm really glad you said that. I was actually wondering when you gave that example, as far as um, like losing somebody, if you would ever stop and be like, wait a minute, like, you know what, you're right. I, I'm really far off in this and I'm, I'm actually feeling a little bit embarrassed right now. And I'm wondering if, you know, you give me the opportunity to actually start again and, and tell me about what it, where you guys are with mm. this and, and own the mistake and, try and reset. And if they're not going to, obviously, you know, some people will, will not want to do that. Um, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Is the psychologist side of me. Uh, I, I, I love that. There. Yeah. The average salesperson. And uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I, That's I, why like, we're doing this. Like, David's like, no, you never I, admit to mistakes. I, I tell, well, no, it's not that you never <laughs> admit to mistakes. No, I'm just, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of the average salesperson doing that in front of a group. And, um, very risky and probably very anxiety provoking for them, but it's, it's a phenomenal point. Um, it, it is. Yeah. And, and I think there's, so there, there's two ways that I, I would think about that. And I, and I, I just like kind of blown away actually by how simple that idea is. And it's, it makes so much sense as you're saying it. Um, there are some mistakes that I think about that I, I almost think about as a, as a musician, we call it playing through the accidentals that if I get something small, that's wrong and the audience isn't going to notice it. That's where the stuff that we're in our own head is we're up and presenting that anxiety of, Oh no, I showed the wrong screen or this thing didn't load. Okay. I just pretend like that was supposed to happen though. Those smaller mistakes, it, it's no different than when I'm on stage and playing something and I play the wrong note and um, usually audiences are drunk, but you know, even if they're not, they're not going to notice that I played something wrong as long as I don't show them that I played something wrong. So part of it is my reactions to the things that I'm doing. So if I react really negatively to my mistakes, they're going to feel my anxiety and they're going to respond almost more to me than to the mistake. And so I, I think for some of the smaller ones, then yes, you, that's, you can for the smaller ones you can just kind of play through it but i think for the bigger ones it's a really interesting thought about you know, and i think it is totally scary to say in front of an audience like i'm sorry i screwed this up um 
I don't think you could get away with it on a first meeting when you haven't built a relationship. I think it's, it's too, I think it's a, a bridge too far for a lot of people. I think later in a relationship, you get more leeway to do that. I think that's where in one-on-one conversations where something's not landing, that's where I've maybe stopped and said, I'm getting the feeling this just isn't that I'm maybe not showing you the right thing. Um, Help me understand where I'm missing this. I think that that's better in an intimate sort of one-on-one or one-on-two kind of environment. I think in front of an audience, what's that? So it's at least less scary to do oh, it is. one-on-one or one-on-two environment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just picturing the average sales manager just saying, wait, you did what? You told them you messed up. And so I think that there's, there's so many layers of, of potential anxiety. And, and especially we don't want to look dumb in front of our, in front of our peers. I, I'm still haunted by the time that I bombed a demo of an internally in front of 40 people at, at my company. And it, it I probably should have stopped and said, you know what? I'm clearly just not connecting here. And maybe that would have been better. Um, but yeah, that, that's still probably the worst demo I've ever done. And it, it haunts me to this day. So I, I'm trying to go back now as you're talking and think about maybe some of the ones that I've, I've done that haven't gone well. And that might, that might be a good thing to do. It, even just stopping. And, and one of the things that I tell people to do is just stop and catch your breath if you feel yourself kind of going off the rails. So maybe not necessarily apologizing for it, but when you're kind of going off, like it's okay to just stop and take a breath. And if you need to pivot a little bit or just stop and ask a question or try, just try to get them to talk and then regroup a little bit. And if they're talking, then they'll probably feel better about it. Yeah. yeah I, I just want to pause here. Any thoughts on what I just said? Um, you know, are we tracking, you know, uh, I want to make sure that landed appropriately because I feel like it's important, you know, any like, yeah, trying to, trying to get some engagement and then almost seeking the objection. So you can apologize and overcome. Well, and, and I was going to say yeah. the apology piece, you, you, I think there's a difference between acknowledging a mistake and apologizing. I think when you're overly apologetic, it puts you in a, in a one down, excuse me, a one down position that, that also is unappealing, but acknowledging the mistake as a, you know, an equal playing field of, yeah, that that was a mistake and let's, let's just try something different is different than I'm so sorry, you know, beg your forgiveness. Yeah. I, I like yeah. the uh, emotional intelligence and humanity of that though. Like it's, yeah. Again, to your point, when, what's the relationship, how many people, you know, how what have it, they said what to you? you? Yeah. What reaction? Like, yeah, yeah. Like with what, to what degree? I mean, yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of nuance. Sword art. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's yeah. What, what we're getting very, uh, very senior in, in a, in a demo skill right there. That That's not- no, it, it is. You're talking very, very advanced stuff. And yeah. even as I'm, as I'm thinking about that, I think even, even more so is when the audience starts raising objections. That's, I think the other area where that, that very much becomes a thing where it's, I say the wrong thing to try to overcome an objection. And now I've kind of dug myself into a hole. And so it, it might not even be something that I prepared for. It's just something off the cuff. And so, you know, maybe just stopping and taking a breath before answering an audience's question. I think we're, we're always so quick to jump in. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves dug into a hole because we didn't really know where we were going to go with the answer. We just kind of started doing it and hoping for the best. And, um, you know, I think ultimately then we sort of, we feel dumb and they feel dumb and it's just sort of this cycle of everybody's feeling bad now. Yep. Yeah. And one of the, the tricks I learned from a mentor of mine is, when someone asks a question, don't answer the question. Instead, say, hey, 
That's a great question. Why'd you ask it? <laughs> That's, uh, so, so was this like a politician who told you that? <laughs> <laughs> he, he could be. Uh, he's definitely, you know, he could be the mayor. But, um, uh, but yeah. Is that the mayor we're speaking of? Um, so it's, it's, uh, uh, it is, uh, it's a great, it's a great trick to make sure you have time to think, but also really understand before you respond. Exactly. Yeah. And that's hard in front of an audience. I think we, we tend to just want to answer it because we want to be the smart person in front of the room. There's, it feels good to be in front of a group of people and have them look at you and know, like, they all think I'm the smart person <laughs> that that there's something really empowering about that. And I, and I think a lot of us really enjoy that feeling. And we're so scared to lose that. And and if we're not ready for the audience to throw us off, which they will throw us off, there will be a hostile IT person in the room who doesn't like what we're doing. And so it's it's so easy to kind of just lose that control. And I think that's really and I think that's really what it is for a lot of people. I think it comes down to control. It's we want to control as much of it as we can. And when we start to lose that, I think that's where you can very easily get that spiral. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, hey, this has been uh, super powerful, and I'm sure the audience is taking a lot away. Um, any, any other like closing thoughts, best practices, any 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 additional things that you'd really want to you know convey or, or share? <laughs> I, I think I just I want to reiterate. I think that I think that the biggest number one thing from this conversation it's do everything you can to be yourself in front of an audience and think about what is your personality going to be, um, and it comes down to. I mean, let me ask you this. So, have you have you always had have you lost to a solution that you know was worse than yours? Yes. Yeah, I have more than once. And it's because that salesperson managed to figure out what connected with the audience. Even if I know that it, and I've, and so that to me, it's winning in, in technology. It's not about who has the best solution. That's never what it's been about. I think we, we want to so kind of fool ourselves and, and think that it's like, oh my God, if I had just one more thing in the product, if I had one, I had one more thing in the demo, we're just a little slicker or this, like, that's not what it's about. It's, um, can you get up there and have a real conversation and show the audience you understand them? Because I do think audiences are buying, they, they're buying from the people that they trust just as much of the technology because they, that's, if we go back to that idea of fear, they're scared that when they buy this, what if it doesn't work? What if I buy something and it's a failed deployment and it's a million dollar decision and that deployment fails, I'm getting fired. And if it gets ripped out, I'm fired when that happens. And so the more we can show people that we're people and that we understand them and um, we don't have to agree with the audience all the time, uh, but can you validate them as a person, even if you're not validating everything they're saying and make them feel like you care, that's who they're going to buy from. Great advice. Yeah, no, that's really strong. Um, audience, follow Ed, check out Demo Solutions. Um, outsource your, your solution consultancy to him if, uh, if you see too many gaps. Um, but no, I mean, you, you're, you're doing some awesome stuff. Really appreciate Thank the you. time and the conversation. Um, and like I said, audience, please, please check uh, his business out. I mean, it's, <laughs> this is clearly very advanced stuff that we all need to be taking away and, and doing and learning from. Um, Ed, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. Um, audience as usual, uh, please uh, stay safe. Uh, try and stay healthy out there. Um, if we can do anything for you, we're always a resource for you. All right. Thank you for joining us. 